1: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Good Night Robin Williams edition. It's Wednesday, August 13th, 2014, and on today's program, we remember the life and work of the irreplaceable comedian and actor Robin Williams, and then Steven Soderbergh's new TV series, The Nick. Is it a hallmark for the golden age of television, or just another tired medical drama dressed up in handlebar mustaches? And finally, the weather. We discuss how to turn the scourge of small talk into enlightening conversation, and also how climate change is affecting weather chat. Joining me today is Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. And also Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg. Hey, John, good to have you.
1: Hey, Dana, great to be here.
2: All right, so Robin Williams, the beloved actor and comedian, died yesterday at age 63, apparently by his own hand. This is the kind of topic that's always hard to get into because it's so sad and so heavy. But it's also, in this case, I hope a topic that will bring people some laughter and some memories. So um, obviously, you could talk for days about Robin Williams' career, which lasted decades and decades, and we wouldn't get everything in. I think we all spent a lot of last night, you know, cramming as many clips into our eyeballs and reading as much about him as we could. And I just wanted to ask the two of you sort of what you what memories you wanted to, to bring in first to start the discussion.
1: Well, I think one thing that struck me last night when the news—the uh, sad news broke was that there was a smattering of uh, Slate folks who were still at their desks, and it was a smattering of Slate folks that represented sort of different generations. There were 40-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 25-year-olds still at their computers, and everyone had a different Robin Williams touchstone, uh, which I think speaks to the length of his career and also its variety. You know, Forrest Wickman, uh, one of our, our writers, uh, the first clip he thought of was the uh, genie performance from Aladdin which I've never even seen for me I'm old enough that Mork and Mindy was the first thing that popped into my head but I'm I'm sure that you guys probably had had different moments. I mean, his career was just so varied and long.
2: Well, and just the fact that he did so many family movies, right? I mean, in addition to having an absolutely filthy mouth on stage, as a, as a stand-up comedian, he was very drawn to doing family kind of movies. So it seems like people of several different generations can remember him as somebody they watched as a kid, right? Mork, if you're, if you're my generation, and for Forrest Wickman, it was, it was the Aladdin genie voice. Right. For me, it was
0: Dead Poets Society. I'm not ashamed to admit. I mean, that movie... I watched the first half hour of it before taping the show and it made me cry already in the first half hour.
2: Why do I stand up here? Anybody. To feel taller. No. Thank you for playing, Mr. Dalton. (laughs) I stand upon my desk to remind myself that we must constantly look at things in a different way. See, the world looks very different from up here. You don't believe me? Come see for yourselves. Come on. Come on. Just when you think you know something, you have to look at it in another way. Even though it may seem silly or wrong, you must try. Now, when you read, don't just consider what the author thinks. Consider what you think.
0: The way in which he embodied this raffish teacher who was determined to subvert the horrible norms of Welton Academy, known by its um, buttoned-up attendees as Helton, um, <laughs> It was just so charming. I, I saw that as a teenager at a prep school. And he somehow managed to temper and control that wild comedic persona and have it only come out in little glimmers and spurts in that role. So he appeared to be mostly like the buttoned up teacher that you wanted uh, to take a class from. But th- he managed to use that incredible effervescent comic energy to turn that teacher into some person who could actually guide you forward in the world as opposed to just teaching you about a subject and I, you know high school is your world when you're a teenager and, and to have this portrayal this utterly romantic portrayal of the, of the glory of a great teacher, I just loved I loved that movie
2: And We all have a great need for acceptance but you must trust that your beliefs are unique, your own, even though others may think them odd or unpopular, even though the herd may go, that's bad
1: <laughs>
2: Robert Frost said Two roads diverged in the wood And I I took the one less traveled by And that has made all the difference and I want you to find Your own walk right now Your own way of striding, pacing Any direction, anything you want Whether it's proud, whether it's silly, anything Gentlemen The courtyard is yours
0: and the thing that actually struck me the most watching it, the thing I'd forgotten, both watching that movie and listening to his interview with Mark Maron, which Mark Maron recycled yesterday and um, with a very moving opening, and which I'd never heard before, was how quiet his quiet voice was. I'd forgotten his soft shoe, because you remember the exuberance and the wildness of his big performances. But he he knew how to control their power by giving you a very quiet and subdued Self as well.
2: This is something that really, really struck me. Kind of widely sampling from his, his work last night is that he really did have this strange lightning in a bottle kind of talent. That he had this electric, manic energy, and yet some of his greatest roles. I think the movie that I rewatched last night, all of was Goodwill Hunting, and that's maybe one of his most restrained and contained roles. When I ask you about love. You probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell, and you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her be there forever, through anything, through cancer, and you would know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand. Because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss. Because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. And that's one of those roles that he's, he's so hushed, but there's so much kind of rage and, and pain inside of it. It's a great, great performance.
1: Yeah, I was struck by that same thing. Uh, A.O. Scott mentioned this in his appreciation in the New York Times, that sort of lightning in a bottle quality. And I think one of the things that's so interesting when you're watching one of those performances that is largely reserved is that you know that that lightning is going to come out at some point in the movie, and you're just sort of waiting for it to happen. And that kind of gives the performance its own electricity. You're like, when's, it, when's he going to drop the sort of soft voice kind of um, reined in, Robin Williams. The movie I watched last night was *The Birdcage*, where although he is, you know, famously playing uh, a gay man, he's playing a far more restrained gay man than Nathan Lane is, who plays. Um the cross-dressing uh, star of this um, drag show, and so, and and then ultimately in the sort of climax of the movie, he's playing a gay man playing a straight man, so he's even restrained by another level. But there's this wonderful scene where he breaks out and is showing uh, one of his underlings how to do this dance number in the drag routine, and he just does this incredibly flamboyant, funny history of flamboyant dance thing. You do an eclectic celebration
2: of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna.
1: But you keep it all inside. All right, just work on that. I'll be right back. And for a second, you see that crazy anarchic, Robin Williams, and then he puts the lid back on, and he's the sort of more restrained Robin Williams. And waiting for that moment to happen is, like, really exciting. You know it's coming.
2: Right, and the strange thing is that it's impossible to say which is, is more Robin Williams. I mean, we're not even talking about the private Robin Williams that we can't know, but but as a performer, it's sort of hard to say which was his essence. Was it that Jonathan Winters-like, you know, crazy container for different voices and psyches that could just burst up, you know, the, essentially his stand-up persona? Or was it this more gathered, almost shy and quiet person that he could sometimes be in interviews as well?
1: Right, and I think that's one of the reasons that that Mark Marin interview is so interesting is you see him going back and forth between those personas very rapidly. Like he's sometimes very quiet and thoughtful about his career and the breaks he's had and what it takes to make it uh, as a comedian, and then in a split second he'll do an he'll be jumping into an impression or riffing off something Maron says, and you just see him sort of switching those two masks so fast it's impossible to tell which one is the real face. To
0: the point where at the close of the interview, he's impersonating himself, having a conversation with his own conscience about how he feels about suicide, which is harrowing to hear the day after you learn of his death.
1: There's this um, sort of thread of thought that I feel like various people who, in writing about Williams' death have picked up that I find both compelling and slightly worrisome at the same time, and I'm curious what you guys think about it. You know, There's this, obviously Williams was someone who was who was just sort of constantly channeling this amazing energy when you watch him particularly on say Carson or doing one of his late night uh appearances is almost like he's on to the next joke before he's even finished the one he's telling he's just there's a there's this idea kind of out there that you almost feel like you're watching him running away from his true self, that he needs to be constantly performing, constantly pleasing, um, and just that, this, that that energy is, while what made him special, also kind of tragic because you feel like you're watching someone who has these demons flee from those demons. And while that's an interesting kind of psychological analysis of Williams, I, I worry a little bit that it's a little easy. Like, what if he was an, an anarchic talent who was also depressed and not an anarchic talent was anarchic because of his depression. I think it's a little easy to draw the line between the two, but I don't know if that's all you guys thought I about. think
0: you saw some of the same thing in, in responses to Philip Seymour Hoffman's death earlier this year, the sense that incredible talent and incredible sensitivity to human emotion and ability to inhabit various human psyches is almost symptomatic of the disease or the addiction or the pain that caused the addiction or whatever. And I think... You're right that it's a little bit, I find those points a little bit troubling as well. They may be true, but it feels like when somebody who's not the doctor says, well, X caused Y, or it doesn't seem like we can truly ever understand the relationship between the manic energy, the pain, the depression, the performances, or anything else. Yeah, there's
2: no way to extricate those things. And the performer himself doesn't understand or master that relationship in either case.
0: One other thing that struck me rewatching clips of, of Robin Williams last night was just how much he's sort of fallen out of the cultural conversation a little bit. I mean, he, he had become a little bit uncool in part because he had made very erratic movie choices for a while, in part because I think he'd been struggling with these demons for a few years. But, you know, there was a time, I mean, I grew up in the age of Robin Williams. He was the premier comic. He was magical to watch. Anything that he was in, you kind of automatically wanted to see. And that hadn't really been true for a while, I think, in part because of some of the career choices he made. I mean, Dana, I think you were looking through his filmography last night, right? And there are some strange patterns there.
2: Yeah, you know, in terms of kind of trying to periodize his career and the choices he made, it really struck me that there were sort of two kinds of of roads he would go down. You know, when it came to to his movie choices, he he could choose things that were sort of sentimental and mawkish, which I think he did not only for the paycheck, but because he was drawn to that kind of material, family stuff like Patch Adams, Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, or just very, very um, sort of heavy sentimental drama like Jacob the Liar or What Dreams May Come. And I think that may have have been some of the stuff that made him, Julia, start to be on the more uncool side of the comic spectrum. But then almost as if to counteract that, or maybe just because there was another part of him that was drawn to this, he would be in these very, very dark roles like One Hour Photo, in which he plays a a stalker and potential serial killer, or uh, Death to Smoochie, or World's Greatest Dad, you know, things in which he was essentially playing the reverse, you know, the darkest possible version of the, the warm family man.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I should clarify, of course, that by cool, I don't mean like having value or not having value. I think it's just interesting the way his mode of comedy has come in and out of vogue over the last couple decades. I was actually struck looking through some of his performances at how beautiful the Aladdin performance is, even though it's the Disney movie. There's something about the way that he acts and speaks that is so uncontainable and so shapeshifty that in fact... Seeing him as like a blue digital guy who literally changes shape to match the different voices as they come rat-tat-tat is like poetic and gorgeous. Let's listen to a clip of when uh, Aladdin first meets the genie.
1: Ten thousand years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second.
2: Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh Aladdin. Uh, Aladdin. Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al? Or maybe just Din? Or how about Lottie? Sounds
1: like, here, boy. Come
2: on, Lottie. And that just makes me realize that in Aladdin, his character is essentially, the genie is essentially Mork squared. He's, he's, he's Mork, but he's allowed to come out of his bottle and be sort of, have Infinite visual representations as well as infinite vocal sounds.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, that that clip is so amazing. But I wonder if it also sort of speaks to his, the uncoolness point that you made, Julia. Because as enjoyable as that is um, to, to listen to and watch, it sort of feels like a, a comedic style that's very much not in style right now. If you think about Louis C.K.'s stand-up, the thing that kind of makes it distinctive to my mind is that there's a sort of studied offhandedness. When you watch Louis C.K. do stand-up, it's, it, it seems like he's just a guy on stage talking, sort of telling stories about his family, and the, the comedy uh, just sort of... Pops up. Whereas here with Robin Williams, he's doing this kind of amazing virtuosic series of impressions that has a kind of Catskills, Marx Brothers vibe to it, sort of throwback feel. Um, and also, just you're, he's wearing his talent uh, and his, his amazing comedic muscles right on his sleeve. Uh, and he's being a showman, showman, showman. Uh, it doesn't have that slightly more slacker feel that I think a lot of the um, most popular stand-up right now has.
2: Yeah, you're right. I mean, you really feel the indebtedness to older comic styles in those those very electric performances that incorporate all kinds of different personas. It's, you know, it's Jonathan Winters or, like, you know, Shecky Green or something. It's like going back to to stage comedy, which, yeah, it does seem like something that, that could age out after a generation and feel like, well, what is he doing? He's trying too hard. Right? Although I find that it's so charming to see that much effort.
0: You know, the studied coolness is, is to me somehow less cool or a little bit... Um, it's in keeping with comedy's rise to being like the chic, important mode, right? The fact that disaffected young men now like follow stand-up as opposed to um, punk bands is maybe to comedy's detriment in some ways, maybe to comedy's great benefit in others, but the the kind of unabashed joyful excessiveness of that performance is amazing. I mean, I'm not sure if you can quite tell when you're hearing it, but at one point he proposes nicknaming Aladdin Laddie Contorts into a Scottish accent, but then also almost simultaneously decides that Laddie sounds like a dog's name. So then becomes a Scottish dog or a Scottish dog owner, uh, and you know keeps kind of contorting it beyond that. So it's not just impressions; it's sort of impressions that turn into sub-impressions that turn into sub-impressions from there. um, So that he's always doing not just one but two or three things at once, and the excessiveness of that is charming I think and feels sort of fresh I mean it it makes me lament even more our loss because surely the dial would have come around again and Robin Williams would have been in a project that um would have felt a little bit more central to the culture and it's it's sad to consider what that might have been
2: I think that's right, Julia. But I also think it's important to remember that he kind of remained a comics comic, even if it is true that he had sort of fallen out of the popular culture's idea of what cool comedy is right now. There's no question that the cool comedians, including Louis C.K., kind of venerated Robin Williams. And that's one of the nice things about listening to that Mark Maron podcast is, you know, what, the sense of kind of what an eminence he was among them. All right. Well, the conversation about Robin Williams is not over. It's still out there in the culture. So please write into us at Facebook.com slash culturefest and send us some clips of your favorite scenes, your favorite moments or your favorite stories. All right, Julia, now is the time in the show when we talk about our sponsor. What have you got? Our sponsor this week, Dana, is
0: Audible. Audible is the leading provider of digital spoken audio entertainment. They offer more than 150,000 audiobooks, which you can play on nearly any device, including whatever you're using to listen to us right now. And Audible has a special offer for our listeners. They can get a 30-day free trial and one free audiobook by signing up at our special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. We have lately been collecting what we're calling the Culture Gab Fest Bucket List. This is a set of books that you must read to really understand uh, the history and culture of the world and to be eligible to talk to Steve Metcalf at a dinner party should you desire to do such a thing. And this week we have an edition inspired by our next topic, The Nick, which is set at turn-of-the-century New York uh, and which called to mind for me one of the greatest books of history I've ever read, The Great Bridge by David McCullough, which is the story of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And it's a few decades before the Nick, but it really deposits you in a very vivid way in the kind of economic tradesman reality of New York in that era. And also the just astonishing engineering feat of getting this beautiful and functional and still standing bridge built and the kind of characters and personalities and industries that went into that and and the feats of brilliance and daring and um, just human glad handing that went into having it happen. So It's the Great Bridge by David McCullough, available along with many, many other titles on Audible. I should also mention that membership includes a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give Audible a try today and please use our URL so they know you're a Culture Gab Fest listener. That's audiblepodcast.com slash culture All right, Dana, what's next?
2: Thanks, Julia. I would love to listen to that. My daughter just did a semester-long unit on the uh, the Brooklyn Bridge last year, so I feel like I'm up on all the great gossip and stories, and I'd love to see it all synthesized in one place. So, moving on. Cinemax's The Nick is a new TV show created by Steven Soderbergh about a hospital in New York City at the turn of the century, the Knickerbocker Hospital, hence the name The Nick. Soderbergh supposedly retired from filmmaking a year or two ago. He announced that he was he was done as a filmmaker, but obviously he is now scratching the itch by going back to TV in what I would call a sort of cinematic mode. The Nick stars Clive Owen as the antihero Dr. John Thackeray, who is, help me describe John Thackeray, he's a coke-addicted... Asian prostitute frequenting racist racist boorish <laughs> boorish doctor but an an excellent surgeon. doctor <laughs> yes who specializes in is he just a general surgeon I guess we don't know he's a, I think there is only general surgery <laughs> right. at this point because <laughs> yeah. they seem
0: to be barely figuring out yeah. uh, what it means to cut bodies s- open and put s- them back together
2: but despite all of the antihero qualities I just named he is in fact a very dedicated surgeon and so the show is sort of about this balance a sort of a house you know like the, the TV show house a balance between you know someone who's very committed to his job Job and to saving lives, and at the same time is essentially a very unpleasant person to be around. Um, we've all watched a little bit of The Nick and are ready to talk about it now. I have no idea what either of you thought of it. John, I'll start with you. The Nick, yay or nay?
1: Let me start with a caveat, which is that I watched the first episode um, while inadvisedly eating four pieces of tuna sashimi, <laughs> which I do not recommend. I also have a wife who is almost eight months pregnant. Uh, and the show opens with... A, oh, she
2: did not watch that C-section scene. Thankfully,
1: she was not home. But this, the f- the pilot opens with a just truly gruesome scene of these doctors attempting t- essentially a cesarean uh, delivery at a moment where that had not been perfected by a long shot. And it is just a really hard scene to watch. Now, I should say I am incredibly squeamish. So this show is just was never going to be for me um, just on the level of... Of just sheer difficulty of watching I confess that I kind of walked around my TV during various moments in the pilot and kind of listened but didn't watch because I just it was just too much blood it was too much viscera uh, I had a really hard time with that That's, that said I also just didn't like the show uh, I found it <laughs> <laughs> I found it very pat I found the anti-hero character Thackeray the sort of genius doctor who's all, who you know was medicating himself uh, within an inch of his life to be a very kind of boring and predictable character. Um, I found the sort of noble black surgeon who's introduced in the pilot to be a very thinly sketched, at least at first, uh, character who also operates in very predictable ways. Um, I found the sort of tedious historical irony that the show trucks in to remind me of the worst uh, elements of Mad Men from its first season, which thankfully it ultimately uh, grew out of. So I found very little to like about this. Ah. I did enjoy my sashimi, though, after (laughs) I I, uh, put it aside for a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Wow, that's a a rousing dismissal.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm going to jump to the show's defense, but first I want to hear what Julia has to say. I see John's points.
0: It's super gross. I mean, you know, it's Cinemax, which is supposed to be one notch maybe beyond HBO, or at least is supposed to have the outre qualities of, of premium cable. And so it sort of makes the houses and ERs of the world look like these dainty, doily-covered shows where they talk about these gross, grisly mes- medical procedures. But you're not usually actually, like, looking at spurting blood coming out of the rubbery gut of, like, a severed human, you know, who's about to die. Like, they sort of... Then the camera pans up at the focused face of George Clooney, and there's just none of that. It's just like, let's look at the blood. It's, it almost resembles, like, a... Surgery reality show, or something at some point, like it kind of reminded me of botched the the plastic surgery reality show we talked about a few weeks, and it's just unflinchingness about giving you the gore, which does seem to be something that premium cable viewers want certain of them. I can't say that i i would there for me it was a lot of like arm flung over the face, <laughs> listening while looking at the bottom third corner of the screen and waiting for the blood parts to be over. Um, I agree. You know that the anti-heroicity of Clive Owen's character is just so snooze-a-roo at this point. Oh <laughs> my God! I would have been so much more exciting if he'd just been like saintly. Yeah, you know, he if should've... he was just like cocaine, never heard of it. Black <laughs> surgeon, come on in. Like, there's enough that's kind of interesting about the show. Just the sheer notion and novelty of putting a super predictable procedural back a hundred years and and all of the challenges of the medical technology and knowledge and lack thereof of that time. To me, that's novel enough. And when you're, you know, rejecting the black surgeon, but not rejecting him for sheer racism, just pragmatism about wanting the business to succeed. So he's not even enough of an antihero to be like just an actual racist. He's a racist you can root for. (laughs) It's like, come on. We've seen these tricks before. We have to get over the antihero thing. That said... I love period television, and it doesn't get done often enough. There was a round of, hey, let's all do period television after Mad Men became such a hit, and then everyone realized it was expensive, and you don't always get the, the um, lightning in the bottle of Mad Men, so people shy away from it. and the notion of just doing straight medical procedural in 1900 is great. I think that's just so fun. Um, and I think it should be like almost as straight and pat as possible. Like there should just be crazy cases and crazy obstacles and some of the doctors and nurses should fall in love. The kind of genre loving wit of Soderbergh, the more that that can be infused through the show, like more power to them. And
1: the bleak joke is every patient dies. <laughs> It never works. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike, you know, the, the traditional, uh, you know, hospital procedural where I probably like 90% of the cases end up miraculously coming back, everyone dies. That Although
2: there be. was that horrible, horrible ER that had the exact same story, placenta previa Failed C-section, the mother and the baby died. So horrible, so unwatchable. But it seems like this show is going to traffic in that kind of stuff every single week, so it is definitely a downer. But can I just say the things that I did like about it? I don't watch Mad Men, but one of the reasons I don't is because when I hear people talking about it, I do always feel like that historical irony, as you call it, just seems so on the surface of the show that I sort of feel like I get it. I get it through the blog posts, you know, (laughs) that we're different from, you know, the 60s, 70s, whatever. Um, And I think this show does hit that stuff a little bit hard. But that said, I think the vision of the period that Soderbergh creates. Okay, first of all, we haven't mentioned this, but the production values are sick. I mean, it looks like cinema. It's beautiful, beautifully designed and imagined 1900-era New York. So if, you, if, like Julia, you're just a period nut and you enjoy seeing, you know, not just the pretty costumes, but sort of like, what did the streets of New York look like? What did the medical equipment look like? You know, how did people sort of um, communicate? I think that even the language the storytelling is not what it should be in this show, but a lot of the dialogue, just scene-by-scene dialogue, is kind of interesting. In in the way that Paul Thomas Anderson's um, There Will Be Blood does, it's sort of has period language without having flowery language. You know, people speak in a slightly more formal way. They use fewer contractions. You know, there's sort of a little bit of a sense even that the English is kind of old, older English. And I, I liked all of that stuff a lot. I also happen to be crazy for Clive Owen. I love Clive Owen. I think he's so underused. I don't understand why he's not like James Bond and, you know, every other hero. He's so rakish and charming and funny. I just think he's he's great. So even though this character is one that is over-familiar from the antihero cable drama, a la of Schreiber and God knows who else is doing it right now out there, I think Clive Owen brings something new to it.
1: I will say this for the, for the period part. Unlike Mad Men, which is set in the recent, uh, somewhat recent past, the distance that the the Nick uh, takes us back uh, to 1900 is far enough that there are some shocking things. I mean, I don't really know much about the practice of medicine in 1900. So, for instance, uh, one thing you see in the pilot is the ambulance drivers essentially competing for sick patients to bring back to their respective hospitals so that their surgeons will have interesting cases to work on and essentially bribing one another and physically intimidating one another to, like, bring home, like, a prized tubercular (laughs) patient… You know, that can be uh, attempted to be cured, um, and like some, something like that, felt like a surprising historical revelation. As opposed to like, oh my god, they're not washing their hands, you know, before surgery. Like we would never do that today.
0: They do wash their hands before surgery.
1: But they're not wearing gloves. All right,
0: fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't have latex gloves yet. I mean, I also think the production values. There are a couple choices made with regard to production that make this feel really fresh. One is. I think in general, there's a telescoping of time that makes 1900 feel closer than almost closer than the 1950s of Mad Men in a way, because what the show is fundamentally about is the frontier of technology. And we are obviously living in a moment when the frontiers of technology are kind of ever on our minds. And there's also kind of an aesthetic note, which I think is intentional, that the current aesthetic vogue in Brooklyn at the moment is very 1890s, right? There's a lot of like white porcelain and dark wood. I mean, basically most of the sets where the surgery is conducted could easily be repurposed for like chic new restaurants mm-hmm. in Williamsburg. <laughs> and so there's a way in which the show has a sense of humor about how far away we consider that time, how close we want it to be, and its parallels with our own. And In what I've seen so far, it hasn't begun to explore those ideas in ways that are really thought-provoking and interesting, but it feels like there's material that could take it further than just case of the weakness if we wanted to. The other choice, which I think is just great in the pilot, is the score. The score is like this electronic, ambient, pulsing. I mean, it actually kind of reminds me of the score from Out of Sight, which is one of my favorite Soderbergh scores, which is very pulsing and loungy and not like... This is a thriller and thus makes it that much more thrilling and similarly the score of this is like wow you're at the you're at the club but it's 5 in the morning and everyone's gone but we're looking at like porcelain scrubs and men with crazy beards and it just creates this sense of like of making you feel how the people living in this time feel that they are in the future they feel like the future has arrived like suddenly they're being able to combat death with all of this new technology that that men didn't have 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years before and the score is just such a smart choice, I think.
2: It was Cliff Martinez who did the score. You know, the guy who scored Drive is the yeah. big movie that I associate him with, which has this also very remarkable kind of synthy sort of 80s sounding score or something. And this, it's, it's it's out of timeness. You're right, Julie. It's the out of timeness that makes it so so fresh and that makes you think, well, what is what is the music saying? Which is not something you usually ask yourself with background incidental music in a TV drama. Maybe just to play you a little sample of that score, let's listen to the uh, the very first scene where we see Clive Owen come out of his chinese hooker's den or sort of opium <laughs> den place that he seems to be hanging out he gets into a horse and carriage and starts riding to to the hospital and then he takes off his shoes these excellent white patent leather boots that he wears throughout the show and uh and proceeds to inject himself between the toes with a needle of cocaine
1: the nick north on mott east on 11th bowery's faster sir won't have a long wait for the trolleys across i don't the want faster i enjoy waiting.
0: You can just hear how striking that is. And it's totally a choice that could not work in a, the hands of someone less skilled and subtle with music than Steven Soderbergh, I think, and be a little too clunky obvious. But I thought it really worked here. I love how in this scene you can sort of hear the buggy tracks, you know, the, the, the wheels of his buggy against the, like, gravelly ground become almost like a drone through the the music itself, which you associate with the music of, I don't know, the 80s or the 90s. It doesn't feel like music that should even have existed at that time in terms of sheer instrumentation, right? And you just are reminded in this thematic way through the score of the cyclical nature of human technology and, and and sort of where we are in the evolution of that. And there's always this temptation to feel like you're living on the on the cutting edge. And of course, you're, you're living deep in someone else's past.
2: Yeah, there's nobody who felt more modern than people in 1900, right? That had to be a time when people thought change could not happen faster than it's happening now. So, John, I have the feeling that you won't stick to the show. You're uh, going to have your sashimi sans Clive <laughs> Owen here
1: for I, I think so. I mean, I, I find all the points you guys made really uh, persuasive, and you've made me appreciate the show more in retrospect than I did in the moment. But I think given my reservations and my just unease in watching the show because of the gore and, and just not liking that, I don't think I can... I could see myself dipping into episode two. And I feel a little bit bad about that because maybe, you know, I think Mad Men got a lot better over the course of its first uh, season and sort of dropped some of the more on-the-nose historical references. So given um, the Soderbergh pedigree, I'm a huge Soderbergh fan. I feel like the show maybe could grow into itself, but uh, I think there's just too many severed arteries and, uh, you know, dislodged duodenums for me to uh, (laughs) keep with it.
2: Julia, what
0: about you? I think I might stick with it. I... It feels like they can't keep up that gore quotient episode after episode. It was so in your face. It felt so piloty to me. Like, there's just going to be <laughs> gallons of blood, literally <laughs> gallons of spurting blood. And I don't see how they can do that episode after episode. And plus, it's not that hard to throw your arm over the face and not watch a couple minutes. And I certainly preferred this gore in service of a technological story to just the, like, zombie gore of Walking Dead, for example. So I, I, might, I might stick with it.
2: I think I probably will stick with it for at least a few more episodes and see where it goes. But yes, granted, I will probably have my hand held over the lower half of the screen to black out the, uh, the spurting gore. The show, again, is The Nick, Steven Soderbergh's new series on Cinemax. So give it a look and tell us what you think.
0: Before we move on to our next topic, Dana, can I remind our listeners about Slate Plus? By all means. Slate Plus is our membership program for five bucks a month or 50 bucks a year. You get access to all kinds of extra goodies. On site, you get no pagination and an enhanced commenting experience. Here at the Gab Fest, you get a bonus segment every week on us and some of the other shows. This week, we're going to be talking about what bit of culture did you encounter as a teen that informed your notion of what you would like to grow up into? So we'll be talking about that after the show for PLUS members. So find out more at slatecom slash culture plus. Say, Dana, nice weather today, huh?
2: Uh, Yeah, a little on the muggy side, August. What you going to do?
0: Swans? Short sleeves? Long sleeves? Big decision?
1: Uh, I never wear a short sleeve shirt because my wife says it makes me look like a soda jerk. (laughs) But um, I'm rolling my sleeves up. I found it actually kind of unseasonably cool this August. I mean, hasn't that been the weather story? That, you know, we haven't had those face-melting days that I associate with particularly New York in August where you stand behind a bus and feel like you're going to evaporate. Yeah,
0: this is the joyful flip side of the polar vortex, apparently.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
2: All right. I would grade that as a B-plus weather conversation as weather conversations go. But we are here now to have a conversation about weather conversations. So Slate's own Troy Patterson, in a recent Gentleman Scholar column where he answers questions about gentlemanly comportment, had some, some things to say about talking about the weather and how to work it into a cocktail party conversation in ways that don't bring everything to a deadly grinding halt. Troy says, I don't mean to issue a blanket condemnation of meteorological murmurings. One good reason to talk about the weather is that weather is sometimes bad. Shared hatred and mutual disgust make excellent crucibles of connection. So is that is that the case? Do we talk about the weather just because we, we need something to hate together?
1: I don't know if it's necessarily hate. I mean, to me, the the reason people talk about the weather is it's the one thing that everybody lives and observes and has an opinion about. So you can you know that your interlocutor will have experienced the weather. You don't know if they saw the Met game last night. You don't know if they've seen the new Coons exhibit. Um, and you may not want to offend them by asking them the wrong thing. Maybe they're a Yankee fan. Maybe they don't like Coons. You know. But the weather, they've, they presumably got up, looked out the window, checked their weather.com, you know, and made a decision about what to wear that day. So they've, they've thought a little bit about the weather. I don't know that much. I don't know that I would say that weather's a great cocktail party. Uh, Subject That seems like it is a kind of death knell for a cocktail party. But what I love about talking about the weather is it just gives you something to talk about with people you don't know and gives you an icebreaker. You know, I had a very pleasant exchange with my barista at Starbucks this morning talking about how cool it's been this August. And it was great. We had a friendly little chat. I really like my barista, and I don't really know much about her. And we it ha- gave us an occasion to have a little moment. It's
2: sort of actuality, right? Current events at its most basic level, like the atmosphere that we're standing in, the air that we're breathing.
0: Well, I think that's the thing that's most remarkable to me about weather and the extraordinary lack of attention that it gets, both in interpersonal conversation and in writing. I would like to come out here in modest defense of talking about the weather, but in extreme advocacy of writing about it. I mean, it's sort of miraculous, right? The atmosphere every day is distinct and has its own character and mood and it's very difficult to put into words and yet it can totally shape your experience of the universe and not that many writers spend that much time nailing it down, right? I mean, I guess that, you know, some might argue that this is what half of romantic poetry is about and maybe that's true, but um, like you don't find a lot of weather descriptions in novels so much so that I've been struck by the few where I've found it and, and really digging into why a certain day, a certain kind of humidity, a certain cast of light feels a certain way is is totally fascinating. It's hard to speak at that level of like subtlety and metaphor and and register of analysis in a passing conversation with your cab driver. (laughs) But I think the weather is important and it affects us all. So to write it off seems stupid. In terms of the conversational aspects of weather, I think we're kind of at a high point for being able to talk about weather in interesting ways because the weather has gotten much more interesting and we've gotten much more aware of it, right? So, you know, Slate just hired a weather blogger, something that I think would not have necessarily been fathomable 10 years ago, but the wonderful Eric Holdhouse has started blogging for our Future Tense blog, and he covers extreme weather all over the country. He's, been, he's covered the drought on the West Coast. He covers the way that the weather is reported. There's lots of interesting stories about the weather, and we know more about weather in other areas because of the internet, because of the nationalization of news, and because you're not just, you know, necessarily listening to your your nightly guy in front of the green screen just talk about whatever front is coming to your town that day. Um, of course,
2: you're also talking about politics and global economy. And anytime you're talking about weather now, you you don't know to what extent you're talking about climate change or not. The two things are woven together in ways that we can't extricate.
1: Which I would argue makes talking about the weather more much more fraught and perhaps not as good a topic as it used to be. Before, you know, 20 years ago, you could... You could offer to someone, hey, like, great sunny day, or do you think it's going to rain this weekend, and you knew it was just a completely anodyne um, subject. Now, you might be wading into a minefield if you're talking to someone who, say, doesn't believe in climate change. Or, I mean, to Troy's point, you might be bringing up a subject that will uh, cause great anxiety in your listener. What if you're... The person you're talking to, you know, lives in Far Rockaway and has a house that's going to be in the path of the next hurricane that hits New York. Um, I feel like talking about the weather brings up all of uh, these fears and anxieties that it maybe didn't in the past. And maybe that makes it a kind of a less good, hey, how you doing? We got nothing to talk about subject. It makes it more interesting, but it makes it more fraught.
2: More loaded, right? If that person has different political views than you, they might be outraged by the idea that climate change is, is causing the hot summer. John, you actually spent some time last year thinking and writing extensively about weather. You wrote a long, you'd almost call it a profile of the Weather Channel for New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that and what you learned about the way we televisually and on the Internet represent weather to ourselves now?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, it's an interesting moment, I think, in weather media because... All of a sudden, we have uh, access to meteorological information um, in places we didn't before, as Julia alluded to. I mean, most of us, I think, now have a weather app of some sort on our phones. And so I know one of the first things I do when I wake up in the morning is I hit my Yahoo weather app to see what the weather is, uh, which is a, which is great for me because I have a forecast at my fingertips, but is lousy for the weather channel, which, you know, traditionally is a channel that you would turn on in the morning to get a forecast, you know, if, you, if everybody has the forecast in their pocket, do you need to be able to turn on the TV and see that guy in front of a green screen talking about the weather? Um, I think one reason that you may still need that person is that, well, as we've been saying, the weather's been getting crazier. So I can open my app uh, in January of this year and see that it's going to be really, really cold in New York. What it's not really going to tell me is that that's because of a polar vortex, something I've never heard of and sounds like it's an apocalyptic uh, event. I need someone on TV, I think, to explain that to me. Or I need someone like Eric Holthouse who writes for us, or the Capital Weather Gang, uh, another great group of uh, weather bloggers, to explain these newfangled – meteorological phenomena that are all of a sudden, you know, uh, having a huge impact on my on my life. So I think, you know, the the weather channel is trying to figure out how to be essential still in this moment where we can get the the bare bones information about the weather. But there are these events that are happening, hurricanes, polar vortices, if that is the plural of polar vortex, um, that we need someone to explain and that we might want to have a we might want to have it explained to us by someone who we trust and someone who might allay our concerns and says, look, this hurricane is going to hit. Do the following five things. Prepare your house. You'll be fine. Or evacuate now. You're not going to be fine. Get in your car. Um, I'd still, I do think at the end of the day, we, we kind of long for that human connection because the weather is this. Um, phenomenon that we can't control, and we want to see humans interacting with it. One of the best things about the Weather Channel, to my mind, and I spent a lot of time watching it in December and January, is it's really fun to watch people out in the weather. Like, we almost can't really understand what 60-mile-an-hour winds are unless some guy in a parka with a microphone is standing there getting, you know, buffeted by those winds and almost blown off screen.
2: Even though that is one of the most ridiculed cliches in news coverage, right? It's like the guy up to his hips in in water, you know, and somebody boating by in the background as he buffeted by winds, it's, it's true that there's something about it that's irreducible. We're seeing evidence of what the weather does to a body standing in yeah, it.
1: Yeah, I think we love to ridicule it, and yet we, we love it and we would miss it if it disappeared.
2: And it is, I mean, it's elemental, right? It, right. Is, th- it is like the
0: foundation of where we exist and what happens to us in the world at, at a base, based level. Do you guys buy my theory that weather is under-memorialized in, in culture?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. Groundhog Day is a great weather-related uh, piece of art, but it's not really about the weather exactly. It's more about a weatherman. It's sort of about the weather.
2: It would be wrong for me to mention Twister again, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I agree, Julia, with your, with your point completely that like, the weather dictates my emotions in a way that is pro- almost nothing else does. Like, I, I very easily fall into the pathetic fallacy of looking out the window on a gray day and thinking, oh, that's because I'm in a bad mood. Or, you know, and I hate that my worst, my least favorite kind of weather is when it's rainy in the morning and then the sun comes out. Because I get in the, like rainy day vibe. I'm like, okay, it's gonna be a rainy day, and then the sun comes out, and I'm like, oh, now I'm supposed to be happy, so, <laughs> to like be all. Then
2: like, you see a rainbow and spit on
1: it. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, come on, I'm not. I just didn't prepare for this. Huh? I got the wrong huh? jacket. It makes me really irritated. Huh? So I feel like, the, you know, I would like to have the catharsis of reading someone, you know, talk about the, the weather's effect on us like that. Or maybe I'm just crazy.
2: Well, in this context, I think we have to mention Tom Skoka's great weather reviews on The All, which is this thing he's been doing for years and years, just randomly. it's I don't know, every few weeks or so, he'll review the weather and write just a beautiful, dense paragraph of prose about some experience of weather during the day. It might be looking into a puddle. It might be watching a sunset. It might be watching clouds go across the sky. But there's something so wonderful and lyrical about the fact that these pieces are only about the weather and only about the weather as subjectively experienced by one person in one place. It's not a weather report by any means. And he get, and
0: he gives a star rating. That's
2: right. He actually <laughs> does. He has a scale of stars. <laughs> you should read a, read a clip from one. Here's a sample Tom Skoko weather review from just a couple weeks ago, July 25, 2014. And it was a five-star day. The rain had washed away the haze, though if it had done anything even briefly about the garbage, the smell had already regenerated. Sex parts drifted down from the honey locust trees. The clouds overhead were a smooth filter on the sun. Off in the east, they stood out, darker and individual. The temperature was uncannily mild and relaxing, a waking dream state. Outside a bodega, a sturdy man tried a pogo stick, not at all competently, the spring groaning. And he goes on in in that mode for about a paragraph, you know, very short, but it's just such a beautiful little snapshot of, of a moment in someone's day. And yes, Julia, it does make you realize that usually the weather is a backdrop, right? We talk about it, you know, even in literature, we talk about it in order to set a mood or because it reflects King Lear's state of mind, but not because it is just what is happening around us.
0: One of the most beautiful books for writing on weather that I've ever read, and it's not a book that I particularly love or have thought about for any other reason since I read it, is a book called Jonathan Strange and Dr. Norrell. And it was um, it's sort of like a half fantasy book with fairies set in a mysterious version of England. But the way that the author, whose name is Susanna Clarke, writes about the weather is just striking, like every scene, every set piece brings you into a very specific kind of day. And you have that flash of recognition, which I think you have more often reading descriptions of faces. I feel like sometimes really good writers, particular kinds of writers, will describe a certain type of face. And you'll think, oh, yeah, I've seen that face. She had that for me with days. She would describe a particular type of weather, a way that a particular day might feel. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I knew that kind of day. Um, So I'm just going to read a couple Here's one. The sky had filled with heavy snow-laden clouds. These were scarcely gray at all, but a queer mixture of slate blue and sea green. This curious coloration made a kind of twilight such as one imagines is the usual illumination in fabled kingdoms under the sea. And I feel like I've had that experience of like a, a weird greenish unsettling winter storm where you start to feel like the world is not quite right. Here's another one. It was the eeriest part of a winter day. Twilight was turning all the buildings and people to blurred black nothingnesses. While above, the sky remained a dizzying silver blue and was full of cold light. A winter sunset was painting a swath of rose color and blood color at the end of all the streets, pleasing to the eyes, but somehow chilling to the heart. I think also one thing that strikes me here is that if you are a denizen of Instagram, which I am, sometimes there's a complaint that, like, the Instagram sunset is a horrid cliche, and, and everyone should stop, please, posting beautiful pictures of the sky. But actually, the sky is such a, like, a mesmerizing and wonderful thing to look at that I'm all for people posting pictures of the sky. Like, you can't quite capture in an iPhone photo with an Instagram filter always the way a day looks or feels. But to the degree that Instagram is fostering attention to the nature of the day... I think that's a force for good.
2: I agree. I have no problem with an Instagram sunset. And I sort of like seeing what other people are seeing in other parts of the world. See what a sunset looks like in India 12 hours from when it's going to happen here. It's never going to happen again in just that way.
1: And it it's a testament to the power of the sky and perhaps more specifically the sunset that I completely understand how cliched the photo is as I'm taking it and posting it to my Instagram. And yet I'm powerless to not do it. Like, I don't want to do it, but I'm like, this sunset's so great. i got to <laughs> share it. People have to see this. <laughs> And then I post and I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that, but oh well.
2: <laughs> At least it wasn't your dinner. <laughs> Inst- Instagram, exactly. <laughs> all right, well, if you're on Instagram, post some pictures of your sunset, your weather. Let's, let's think of a hashtag so we can find them all together. Let's do GabFestWeather. Gabfest, hashtag GabFestWeather. Send us pictures of weather phenomena near you. Yeah, okay. review Review your weather. Give us your day's
0: weather. <laughs> Uh, tell us about the atmosphere where you are. Just post it to your Instagram account with the hashtag #GabfestWeather, and then we can all click on that tag and and see what see what we're seeing.
2: We can all pursue our our boring infinite weather conversation unto eternity.
1: Be sure to include the dew point in your, in your description. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right, guys, we've done it. We've reached the end of the show, and it's time to endorse. Julia, what have you got? Oh, my gosh, I never get to go first. <laughs> this is so exciting. And I have a rebuttal endorsement.
0: Ooh. Dana, I'm rebutting you. <laughs> because
2: my last endorsement blew. <gasps> no, your last
0: endorsement was very fine. You endorsed Awesome Mixtape number 1, which is sort of the Spotify playlist of all the great 70s tracks from... Guardians of the Galaxy. But I've been thinking over the past week, my husband has been playing that on repeat for our kids, and there are lots of great songs on there. But, but... I do not think that that is the greatest 70s soundtrack of all time. In fact, I can think of...
2: Did I make any such claim? No, I'm
0: straw manning you. How dare you call me while I straw man you? <laughs> I, I think that it, for people who are in pursuit... Okay, maybe this is a harmonious joint endorsement. It's an endorsement extension. For people who are overjoyed by Dana's wonderful endorsement last week... There we go. <laughs> ...of Awesome Mixtape Volume 1. God, she's the host for one week and I'm kowtowing left and <laughs> right. There are two other soundtracks that I think are even better portraits of the 70s that offer slightly more unexpected songs in a slightly more charming way. One of them is the soundtrack to the movie Dick, which I think I've also endorsed that movie on the podcast, which is a like very funny, delightful farce featuring Kirsten Dunst and Michelle Williams as uh, two like blithering idiot teen girls who are the true forces behind bringing Nixon down. And they're just an amazing array of 70s songs in that soundtrack. And then the 70s soundtrack that I actually fell in love with in high school is the soundtrack to Dazed and Confused, which is informed by director Richard Linklater's amazing musical taste. It just feels like slightly a little grittier, a little less... Um, like overblown orchestral bubble gummy than the Guardians of the Galaxy take on the 70s sound. So if you are wanting to delve deeper into cinematic visions of 70s music, I recommend those two soundtracks.
2: Oh, those are great. I want to make a big, huge playlist for my upcoming long drive of all of those things put together. John, what have you got?
1: Uh, so my endorsement is uh, inspired by actually a very sad and tragic event uh, this past weekend. As most listeners probably know, uh, Tony Stewart, the NASCAR driver, um, struck and killed a fellow driver during a sprint car race in upstate New York. Um, it's very sad that this happened. It's a it's an awful event for the, the racer who died and for Stewart as well, uh, who's going to have this on his conscience for his whole life. Um, but one... Um, thing that came out of the story is that I, f- I feel like a lot of people all of a sudden had an interest in NASCAR that maybe didn't have an interest in NASCAR before. NASCAR is an incredibly popular sport um, but it's not necessarily one that's uh, popular among uh, say, slate readers, uh, people in the Northeast, um, and so one, and one frustration I've had as a NASCAR fan uh, over the last ten years or so is that I think part of the problem is, is there's not great writing about NASCAR. There's a, there's a little bit of it here and there, but unlike say baseball that has uh, Roger Angel, for example, there isn't some great reporter and writer who who sort of describes motorsports uh, lyrically and you know spins out these wonderful narratives about. Um, what I think is actually a great sport and one that's maybe misunderstood by a lot of people who just think it's guys in cars taking a bunch of lefts for four hours. That's uh, your
2: niche then. You, you need to be the NASCAR <laughs> writer. Well, I'm serious.
1: I don't know about that. But um, what I did want to recommend a, a great piece of writing about NASCAR for anyone who does find themselves more curious about the sport than they have been in the past as a result of this awful story. Um, and that uh, piece of writing is actually kind of old. It's from 1965. And it's called The Last American Hero is Junior Johnson. Yes! And from that title, you may have guessed that it it's by Tom Wolfe. <laughs> uh, and it is a piece of uh, writing from Tom Wolfe from 65. It appeared in Esquire. It's actually one of the uh, – an early example of, of Wolfe's kind of great uh, new journalism. And, um, you know, I think Wolfe uh, – some people like him, some people don't. His exuberance can, can grate. But this is, this is good Tom Wolfe. Um, and it's a great introduction to Junior Johnson, who's one of the foundational figures in, uh, in stock car racing. And I thought I'd, I'd just read a, a very brief clip. This is actually the lead to this piece. And uh, Wolf is describing going to see stock car racing in uh, the mid-60s in North Carolina. 10 o'clock Sunday morning in the hills of North Carolina. Cars, miles of cars in every direction, millions of cars, pastel cars, aqua green, aqua blue, aqua beige, aqua buff, aqua dawn, aqua dusk, aqua aqua, aqua malacca, malacca lacquer, cloud lavender, assassin pink, rake a cheek raspberry, nude strand coral, honest thrill orange, and baby fun lust cream colored cars are all going to the stock car races, and that old mothering North Carolina sun keeps exploding off the windshields. Mother dog! <laughs> <laughs> goes on from there. Every, uh, <laughs> every paragraph
2: is improved by that interjection at the end. <laughs> exactly, Mother
1: exactly. And that's actually a pretty good description of a son, I have to say, yes. uh, per our earlier conversation. It's
2: good weather talk, too. Uh,
1: it doesn't all like that. It's not all high-octane uh, writing of that nature, but is a really fun uh, way of dipping into some of the earliest examples of Wolf writing like Wolf and also getting a sense of the sort of dawn of NASCAR when it, when it was still kind of... Um, you know, these Southerners who had learned how to drive trying to escape the L- Johnny Law because they were bootlegging moonshine.
2: That sounds fantastic.
1: Oh and it's on the I should say it's on the Esquire website. you just have to need to you know we'll, we'll include a link on our page, but it's freely available, it's not hard to find.
2: For my endorsement this week, I'm going to go back to our conversation about Robin Williams. It seemed like in all the discussion of his great roles last night, a title that I was not hearing very much was Moscow on the Hudson, which is this Paul Mazursky movie that he made in, in 1984. Uh, Paul Mazursky, also someone who left us very recently. He died in June of this year. And uh, Moscow on the Hudson is one of those restrained roles. It's like the goodwill hunting or what's another role where, where Robin Williams plays it small and kind of close to the vest? there aren't that many, now that I think of it. But Moscow and the Hudson is definitely one. He plays a Russian immigrant who defects. He's a uh, he's a saxophone player in a Russian circus. And on a trip to New York, he kind of falls in love with the the consumer goods around him and a beautiful woman he meets. And he gets kind of seduced by the West and defects. And the rest of the movie is about his adjustment to, uh, to living in New York. It is definitely sort of in the sentimental vein of the kind of material that, that Robin Williams would sometimes choose. But to me, it's not painfully mawkish at all. It's a beautiful, earned sentiment. And it's kind of a wonderful film about a America and immigration, and just a great performance by him. I think he he learned some Russian. He did a great Russian accent, and he really just, I think, inhabited the character of this, you know, this sort of man on the make trying to to find his way in the new world. That sounds great. I've never seen that movie. I'm not sure we even heard of that movie. Yeah, I don't think it got a lot of buzz at the time either. It's not a role of his that's talked about very much. But it's this this very lovely sort of small immigrant drama. So again, that's Moscow on the Hudson from uh, 1984. Well, Julia, thank you as always. Thanks so much, Dana. And, John, thanks for coming in this week to sit in for Steve.
1: Always a pleasure. It's great to
2: have you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about on our show page, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. You can also find us on our Twitter feed at SlateCultFest. And you can email us at CultureFest at Slate.com or send us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Our producer is Anne Hepperman. Our intern is Josephine Livingston. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Julia Turner and John Swansburg, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week.
1: We arrived too late. Our mouths were over me
2: I turned off the
1: light. So.